Elevation Church is growing. It has been growing for a long time. God has been building this church from the very beginning. In fact, he's been building it since before Trina and I ever had the vision to go and do this. And so I just wanted to celebrate this cool thing that God has been doing as a church family. So I just want to give a little round of applause to God because he just keeps on growing Elevation Church and I'm thankful for it. So anyway, I thought I'd share that with you guys this morning and, and just uh, celebrate together. Six hundred years before the birth of Christ, God was building some other stuff too. He was building lots of stuff. We're going to look at one building project in particular, and the history of it begins those 600 years before Jesus ever appeared on the earth. And at that time, there was a man named Nebuchadnezzar. Now, he makes the all-name team. I'd like to see them try to get that across a football player's jersey, right? Nebuchadnezzar. And if they got it on there, I want to hear Troy Aikman try to pronounce that one on Sunday Night Football sometime. But Nebuchadnezzar was the king of the Babylonians. He was the king of the Babylonians, and the Babylonian army, Nebuchadnezzar's army, came to Jerusalem... And they waged war, and they defeated the Jewish people. They conquered the city of Jerusalem. And when Nebuchadnezzar's army conquered Jerusalem, they didn't just wipe out the defenders there. They didn't just take on the army. They also tore down the temple, the center of Jewish worship. And on top of that, they destroyed the walls that surrounded the city. So they conquered the people. They killed they also captured, they destroyed the temple and tore down the walls. That's a lot of stuff. And the significance in some of this will become very apparent as we go through this series uh, over the next several weeks out of the book of Nehemiah. In this story, the 600 years before Christ, the, the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem. They tore down the walls. They tore down the temple. And this put the Jewish people in a bad way. First of all, the center of their worship was destroyed, the, the temple, the place. Beyond that, when the walls were torn down, those walls represented some level of security. They were put up for a purpose. Those walls provided a barrier against marauding peoples coming in and trying to conquer Jerusalem. Well, they probably gave about four to six months worth of slowdown factor. For any army that would come against Jerusalem, they would encounter the walls, and it would take them a while of putting a siege together before they could break into the city. And apparently, the Babylonians did a good job of doing this. They conquered the city, and they tore down the walls, and then they hauled off and left. And they didn't rebuild anything. And they took a lot of the Jewish population that wasn't killed with them as captives 800 miles back to Babylon. And there was a small remnant of the Jewish people left in Jerusalem with no temple to worship in and no walls to protect them or their city. Fast forward a few decades. I love how the Old Testament works. I don't know about y'all. I kind of have a little bit of a streak of aggression in me. I like wars and battles and stuff like that. Historically, like I don't want to go and I don't really want any of our people to you know, die in them, but, but I love to study them. And you know what? The Babylonians got captured. <laughs> the Persians swept into Babylon and they took over the Babylonian Empire. And so the Babylonian Empire was sucked into the Persian Empire and they got a new king. Guess what? When the Babylonian Empire got taken over by the Persian Empire, all of those Jewish captives were kind of included in the deal. So 
they got sucked into the deal too. And they were taken captive and continued on in their slavery under the Persians. And the Persian king at one point sent some of the Jews, some of those captive Jewish people, back to Jerusalem with a mission to rebuild the temple and the wall around Jerusalem. And when they got there, they began the work, but they never completed it. They never even got the temple complete, and they didn't even start on the wall. Fast forward a few more years, you got a, another king of Persia, another man that makes the all-name team. His name is Artaxerxes. Come on. Artaxerxes, A-R-T-A-X-E-R-X-E-S. Come on. I love these Bible names. Artaxerxes, though, when he took power, said that there would never be a wall around Jerusalem. He swore there would never be a wall again around the city of Jerusalem. Let's pick up now with Nehemiah chapter 1, because we're going to study what happened in the next several years from that point forward. And it involves this man, Nehemiah. Let's see what's up with Nehemiah. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. Now, I think it's interesting that Nehemiah, this Jewish descendant, we're now like a hundred years removed from the original fall of Jerusalem. So he's generations removed from the people who were there. He would have never seen Jerusalem. He wasn't born there. His probably great-grandparents were some of the captives that were hauled away. But here he is a hundred some odd years later, and he's very interested in what is going on in Jerusalem and with the Jewish people, the remnant of the Jews that are still there. And he asks when he has an opportunity, when he sees somebody, this Hanani, we don't know if Hanani was his actually flesh and blood brother or probably more likely just a, a Jewish brother. He sees him and asks him, what's up with the Jewish people? What's up with Jerusalem? You've been there. And he hears this dose of bad news. But what I think is interesting about that the most is that he cared enough to ask, to ask about a place he had never been and a people that he didn't know. Frankly, a culture he might have just had some stories about, but had never truly experienced. And yet he cared enough to ask. Verse 4, when I heard these things, when he heard the bad news, he says, I sat down and wept. I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah didn't just care enough to ask. He didn't care enough just to hear about what was going on in Jerusalem, to, to hear, to listen to what was happening with the Jewish remnant. Nehemiah cared enough to do something about it to do something. He heard, and now he starts to do. Didn't we just finish a study in James? It wasn't one of the main points of that five-week study in James. James teaching us that we've got to be more than hearers. We've got to also be doers. He's modeling for us 
hundreds of years before James was ever there, the biblical principle of doing something with the information that you're given. Not just hearing it, doing something with it. Let's see what he did. The first thing Nehemiah said that he did, he sat down. That doesn't seem like you're doing anything, does it? When you, you, you hear this dose of bad news, you get this bad report, and you know he's got to be kind of fired up about it. He cared enough to ask. He had compassion on these people and this place, and then he gets this bad news about it, and the first thing he does is sit. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever gotten bad news, a report you didn't want to hear, something that got you kind of fired up, something you cared deeply about and you found out it was not going well, and did you run off half-cocked, not thinking, a little bit rash, and do something kind of stupid? Don't raise your hand. I have, and I bet you have too. We tend to want to respond to things like that, things we're passionate about. We want to respond passionately. And sometimes we're unwise. Let's put it that way. I think that's a mild term. We're unwise when we respond rashly to something like this, to some dose of bad news, some negative report, something that needs something to be done about it. We just run off and do, and sometimes what we do is kind of dumb. So Nehemiah's first thing that he did, I think, was very wise. He sat down, and he wept, and he mourned. Now, weeping and mourning is not something I find myself doing a lot of when I get bad news, even about things I'm passionate about. That's probably because I'm busy running off to do something dumb about it, but that's beside the point. I don't usually weep and mourn. But I think there's something really wise about what Nehemiah did here when he wept and he mourned because of all of the emotions that flood up inside of you when you get that kind of news about something you're passionate about. Those sometimes are what fuels that running off and doing something rash, something stupid. And so Nehemiah sat down so he wouldn't run off and then he wept and he mourned. He poured out all of those emotions that were inside of him. And he got that stuff kind of cleared out of his system, if you will. He sat down, he wept, he mourned, and then he says he fasted and he prayed. Nehemiah fasted and then he prayed. Fasting is a discipline. It's a spiritual discipline that goes back all the way throughout the scriptures. It's from the Old Testament to the New. Jesus started his ministry by fasting he went off into the wilderness. He fasted there for 40 days and nights. Fasting is something that helps us get our minds and our eyes and our hearts off of the, the temporal, the things of this world, the things that we're experiencing in real time, in real life. It helps us take our eyes off of that and keep our eyes, our heart, our head attuned to God. Now, isn't that another theme that we came out of that study of James with, that it's more important for us to align our hearts with God, our wills with God, to live the life God has called us to. Here we have Nehemiah going through these steps so that he can align his heart, so he can align his head with God, so he can go and do what God has designed him to do, what God is calling him to go and do. He fasted so that he could draw closer, so that he could hear better, and he prayed. And the prayer that Nehemiah prayed covers the next several verses 
of this chapter. And we're going to go through those verses, and I want to look at those verses because I'll tell you the truth. Whenever I see a prayer recorded in Scripture, I stop and pay attention to that because I think about all of the people throughout history from the time the world began until they stopped canonizing Scripture, stopped writing things and saying, yes, that was divinely inspired and goes in the Bible. There were a lot of prayers launched in all of that time, wouldn't you say? There were a lot of prayers that went up from a lot of different people. And there are several prayers that are recorded in the pages of Scripture, but when you look at the percentages, it's got to be like infinitesimal, small, teeny tiny number of the prayers that were launched that got recorded. When those things get recorded, I think there's something to that, and we need to pay attention to what this person prayed, to how this person prayed. So I want to look at what Nehemiah prayed and how Nehemiah prayed and see if we can't learn some things from what Nehemiah prayed and how he prayed it. Starting again with verse 4, he says, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Verse 5, Then I said, here's the prayer, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins that we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws that you gave your servant Moses. So far, so good. That's some powerful praying. That's some, that's some strength in the things that, that Nehemiah is saying and the ways that he is approaching God. And again, I remember from James, James wrote that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And we decided that we're only made righteous through Christ, right? Today, you and I, we are only made righteous through a relationship with Jesus. And by the power of Jesus in us, the Spirit in us, we can pray powerful and effective prayers. Nehemiah prayed a very powerful, very, as we will find out, effective prayer. Let's continue in verse 8. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. Nehemiah is going back and saying, look, God, you warned Moses, if we were unfaithful, you would scatter us. Here we are, scattered among the nations. Jerusalem is in ruins. Our people are in trouble. We're embarrassed. We're exposed, just like you said we would be. You told this to Moses, verse 9. But God said, if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, even if they're 800 miles away under a king that is opposed even if they've been through a couple of different empires now and several generations removed, I will gather them, God says, from there and bring them to the place that I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. That is Jerusalem. Verse 10, They are your servants and your people, Nehemiah says, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I hear in Nehemiah's prayer the beginnings of something that I identify as a dream. A dream. 
not the nighttime dreams, but the dream that is something that wells up from within you, something that your spirit moves you to do, something that you are passionate about, something that you have compassion for, something that you are driven to pursue. That's the kind of dream that I believe Nehemiah is kind of dancing around and alluding to and getting dangerously close to identifying as he prays this prayer to God. Funny thing about dreams. I'm a firm believer that nothing good happens in this world without first a dream. Nothing gets done without first a dream. Think about this building that we meet in. It's a community theater, but it started life as an airplane parts manufacturing plant. Somebody had a dream. They built their family business here. They moved their business to Denton and they had another dream. The dream was to turn this building into a center for the arts in the Flower Mound Highland Village area. And they endowed this building to a nonprofit group to run it, to manage it, to make sure that it always served the arts in this community. And here we are meeting in this building, fulfilling the dream that somebody had. Nothing happens without first a dream. Bunch of crazy colonists lived in a little town called Boston a couple of hundred years ago. They had a dream. They dreamed of a day where they wouldn't be taxed by somebody who did not represent them, who did not listen to them, who frankly did not care about them one little bit. They dreamed of freedom. And this handful of patriotic men and women lit a fire under some other people. And the dream began to burst out of them and it became a reality. And here we are a couple of hundred years later, arguably the greatest country, the greatest nation that has ever existed on the face of the earth. In 1962, President Kennedy, I don't care if you like his politics or not, doesn't matter, it's irrelevant, put that out of your mind. President Kennedy had a dream. He dreamed that we, the United States, would put a man on the moon within the decade. By the way, the technology did not exist. It was like, don't sign up for that one. Don't volunteer to be that guy because there's a real good chance you ain't coming back. We could probably get you into space. It's that whole landing on the moon and getting you home thing that we got to figure out. Within seven years, Neil Armstrong took one small step for man and one giant leap for mankind as he realized the dream President Kennedy didn't do the dream. He dreamed the dream. He empowered other people to live the dream. He built that dream. Frankly, he wasn't there for most of it. We know what happened in 1963, but the dream lived on and the dream was realized. Along that same time, there was another man in this country who had a dream. A little Southern Baptist preacher. Nobody even knows his name. Martin Luther King Jr., right? Nobody knows who that is. Martin Luther King! He had a dream. He talked about a dream from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. He dreamed big dreams, dreams people in this country couldn't even fathom, couldn't imagine. Fifty years later, we have the first African-American president in this country. Again, forget about politics, it doesn't matter. We're talking about the dream. From the impossible to the real. Big dreams. And I believe God puts dreams inside of us. He plants those dream seeds in us when He knit us together in our mother's wombs. Nehemiah 
is beginning to have a dream take root and sprout up inside of him. Nehemiah's dream, probably like many of these other dreams we've talked about, he may not be giving it full voice yet as he prays because in Nehemiah's mind, the dream may be too wonderful to believe and probably seems too big to achieve. Too wonderful to believe and too big to achieve. I can totally identify with what that feels like, what that looks like. Trina and I sat in our bedroom one night talking about maybe the possibility of, <laughs> could God maybe one day kind of use somebody sort of like us to plant a church and to reach into dark places in this world and shed light, to take salt and add flavor to some flavorless lives. We dreamed a big dream. <laughs> and here we sit, about four years from that dream, we sit in the reality. It was too wonderful for me to believe that God would use me. Sinful, messed up, jacked up, ill-equipped, uneducated me and my wife and my family to do this thing. It seemed too wonderful to believe and certainly too big for us to achieve. And yet God planted that dream in my heart. See, it's never too big for God and it's never too wonderful for God. And if you check out on your dreams because they seem too wonderful for you because you're so messed up and ill-equipped, or if they seem too big because you don't know the right people, don't have the funding, can't possibly do the deals, make the transactions, have the business sense, the family sense, the relational equity to do whatever need. Great, that probably is a God dream. God-sized dreams are not within our grasp. God-sized dreams blow everything you are capable of on your own out of the water. God is planting a God-sized dream in your heart, in your life. He planted it in you when He knit you together in your mother's womb. It's been with you from the beginning, from the moment He conceptualized who you are, when He would place you throughout the, the pages of history, where He would place you geographically, whom He would place you in relationships with and proximity to. God has a dream for you. It is specific intent planted in you by God. And it may seem too wonderful and too big for you, but it is not too wonderful and it is not too big for God. And when God is ready for that seed of a dream to take root and to sprout up, God will show up and show you what you need to do. Let's go back to the last line, the last phrase. Nehemiah just finished his prayer and he tells the readers, this is his memoirs, he tells the readers of his memoirs, I was cupbearer to the king. Kind of anticlimactic, isn't it? So what? You're cupbearer to the king. What does that mean? The cupbearer to the king in this culture would have been one of his most trusted advisors. The cupbearer, as it might sound, was like a table waiter who brought the king his food and drink and, oh, by the way, got to taste it before the king. And that was a, just a preventative measure. So if the cupbearer keeled over, the king didn't dine on that meal because poison was introduced. Nehemiah held one of the most trusted positions in the kingdom. He had access and proximity to the king, probably had a relationship with the king. This Jewish captive, this slave guy, is 
some people believe maybe second in command in Artaxerxes' government. Either way, he was perfectly positioned in the right proximity with the right people on purpose, planted there by God. And something cool is about to happen. And that's where we'll pick up next week. That's where we're going to pick up next week because the chapter ends. And I know it's right there and we could go read it now, but then I wouldn't have anything to talk about next week and next week wouldn't be any fun that way. So we're going to pick up right there with Nehemiah's story next week. If you want to know what happens next, yes, you can read ahead. And I suggest you do because when you come back next week, you'll be better armed, better equipped for what God is saying to each one of us as we go through this series. But before we leave here today, see, we still have some time on the clock. I think that most of us today have some distance between us and our dreams. We have a little bit of, of distance. We kind of have pushed away from what we thought might be the dream that God has for us because it seemed like it was too big or too wonderful. And then we get busy in life and we have careers and we have kids and we have businesses and, and we do all of these things. We're wrapped up in our entertainment and whatever else that we do in this life and, and, and it just pushes further away. It creates more distance from the dream. It insulates us farther from God's purpose for our lives. So I'm going to do something that y'all are dying for me to do. I'm going to shut up. And I'm going to watch the clock for one minute. And I want you all, and I'll do the same, to just be still and be quiet and be in God's presence for one quiet minute. And I want you to listen for the still, small voice of God and see if you can't identify what dream God has planted in you. That was painful, wasn't it? Some of you haven't been still or quiet for one minute in a long, long time. No television in the background, no kids screaming, dogs barking, planes flying overhead, no radio talk show hosts blaring in your ear, no boss or the people in the cubicle next door. And I'll bet that Probably nobody here had an aha moment where it just snapped for you and you're like, yes, I know what my dream is. But you did just practice a very important discipline in pursuit 
of that dream. You did what Nehemiah did when he sat down. There's some other things that you need to do to identify that dream so you can build that dream, so you can live that dream, that purpose that God has planted in you. You need to, you need to sit down more and listen more. Maybe you have some emotional baggage that you need to flush out of your system. You need to cry, weep, mourn. You might need to yell, scream, and holler. There's a real good chance you have some forgiveness that you need to extend and maybe some forgiveness that you need to receive from some relationships in your life. You might need to do something really crazy and fast. I know, so countercultural. I'm going to tell you something. I, I promote fasting. I think fasting is an important spiritual discipline. I practice fasting at least once a year. You don't have to fast fully like stop eating, no, nothing but bread and water, nothing but water at all for 40 days. And 40, no, a fast doesn't have to look like that. You can give up something. Whatever that thing is that you run to for comfort, I can give you a whole laundry list. I like Diet Coke, Bluebell, ice cream, anything with fat. If it's fried, I'm in. If it crunches, I'm good. Okay, that's just the food stuff. I, you know, I like sit down and, and watch it and don't have to think television. Swamp people, hello? Yeah, to do a whole lot of thinking to watch that show and get something out of it, right? It's just enjoyment. It's rednecks being rednecks. I get to like live my dream and not even get off my couch. It's greatness. I don't know. Maybe you need to give something up. Maybe you need to fast so you can think more clearly, listen more intently, be more attuned, more in line with God's will for your life because that is the dream. That's the dream. Maybe you need to pray more. And by pray more, I don't necessarily mean talk more. Part of praying is listening, journaling, just saying. That's the individual dream that God has. And I want us through this next several weeks to identify that dream and begin to build that dream in each and every one of you if God is ready for that dream to be revealed and built. And he's put this series on my heart, so I believe he has some people in this room whose dreams have been buried and they need to be dug up. They've been called dead. They need to be resurrected. They've been put far away and they need to be brought front and center. And they need to be built and they need to be lived. And we're going to find who you are and we're going to help you build that dream. Because it needs to be built. And it needs to be lived. That's the individual dream. Did you know that God has a collective dream for us, his church? He has a collective dream for all of us together as His church. Check it out. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. God says, He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God is, is patient with all of us, all of humanity, all of His creation. He's patient with us and He doesn't want us to perish. That is that eternal death that we talk about here at Elevation Church all the time. Separation from God. He doesn't want anybody to experience that. He wants us all to repent. We just talked about repentance. We've talked about repentance a lot in this church. If you haven't ever heard what repentance is, it's simple. It's just turning around and going the other way back towards God. In the case of sin, you're going towards your sin. You realize it's sin. You repent by turning around and going back towards God. That's what Peter is saying that God wants for each and every one of us, for all of his creation. And he sent Jesus, his son, because he loves us so much and wants this dream for us so badly that he sent Jesus to ensure that it can happen. 
Not that it will because we have a choice in the matter, but that it can. And Jesus, before he left the earth to go back and sit at the right hand of the Father, established his church as the entity to build that dream throughout time. That's what we exist for as a church, is to build this dream that everyone would know the good news of Jesus and have the opportunity to respond to it so that everyone can have the opportunity to live eternally with God. Let's check out what Jesus said about this dream in Matthew. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. He's talking to Peter, who just wrote that verse we just read. He says, And I tell you that you are Peter. Peter was actually a fisherman named Simon. Jesus renames him right here, Peter. Peter means rock. I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Peter, Simon, a fisherman, uneducated, failed out of the Jewish education system. We know that because he had to take up the trade of his family. He was a fisherman, uneducated. Jesus calls him, Simon, come here. I tell you what, you're Peter, and you're going to be the cornerstone on the most important building project ever throughout time. Imperfect Peter. Peter who denied Christ three times. You think Peter, somewhere along the way, looked down at that dream, at this moment that's recorded in Matthew's Gospel, and says, what? Are you sure, Lord? That's too wonderful for me. I'm Simon the fisherman. I'm Peter that denied you. And yet here we are, some 2,000 years later, the Christian church living God's dream. Because Peter and 11 other fouled up, fallible, freaked out disciples embraced that dream. And they lived it with a no matter what kind of lifestyle. They built it to their own demise, but to God's glory and for our benefit. I believe, Elevation Church, that if we collectively pursue passionately this collective dream that God has planted in us as His people, that we can continue to build and to live that dream of taking the church, taking the good news, the gospel, into the dark places, into the flavorless places, impacting lives, impacting eternities. And I believe as we pursue that collective dream, that God will use that to fuel the fires of our individual dreams and let us live out the greatness that He has planted in each and every one of us as well. Nehemiah is a blueprint, if I can just borrow some more building terminology, a blueprint for the leadership of your own life and for the lives of others. He provides us a blueprint for building the dream, the collective and the individual. And I challenge you today to be here for each and every one of these messages. Look, they're all important. Nothing God ever calls me to preach, or any other pastor for that matter, is second best. But I feel very passionate and purposeful about what God has called us to do at this time with this message. So I challenge you to be here 
And not just to be here, but to bring some people with you who need the collective and the individual dream identified, planted, nourished, so they can flourish, build it, and live it. Heavenly Father, I thank you, first and foremost, for your Son, Jesus, because He is the foundation that we build all of this on, that you build all of this on. Without that foundation, God, we've got nothing. We can build any dream we want. It's built on sand and will crumble and fall and fail. But on that foundation of Christ, we can build your dream. You can make our desires your desires, our heart your heart, our purpose your purpose, and our mission your mission. You can build the dream in us, and we can live the dream in this life and the next. Thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.